0: Where have all the Democrats gone? Our politics have always been divisive, but the style and depth of that division has been more than intense, I think it's fair to say, over the past decade. For a conversation right now about the polarization and paralysis of American politics, I am pleased to be joined by John B. Judas and Rui Teixeira on Tavis Smiley. John, how are you today, sir? Good. Good. That, that was nice and simple and and, mono, and monosyllabic. You gotta do better than that for the next hour, brother. Those one syllable answers, those one word answers, ain't gonna work. Uh, let's try it again. John, how are you today, sir? I'm just fine. That's 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 three that's that's three words. A little bit better. Uh, all right, let's got try I'm
1: up to three words, Thomas. Yeah, I know. Let's
0: let's try Rui. Rui, how are you today, sir?
1: Oh, I'm doing great, Travis. Thanks for having us. Uh, Looking forward to this conversation.
0: That's what I'm talking about. Thank you, Rui. Now I can, I, I know I know who to work with for the next 45 minutes. Uh, <laughs> glad to ha- glad to have you both on. Just teasing, but uh, it's going to be an hour, and we got a lot to cover. And I want to make sure that you understand, John and Rui, This is not your typical seven minute conversation. Uh, we got an hour, and we do it that way deliberately and unapologetically to really kind of tease out uh, all that we need to learn from the two of you uh, about the work you've done, specifically uh, about this book. Where have all the Democrats gone? speaking of Democrats, before we jump into our conversation, let me just do this right. Well, let me mess back. I'm watching my clock. Let me just tell you where I want to go when we come forward. Uh, and then we will jump right into this conversation for the next hour, uh, for the next 40, 50, 50, 45, 50 minutes or so. Um, uh, so, John and Rui, I want to ask in a moment um, their thoughts on uh, two big Democrats uh, today. Uh, one who is having a birthday, a guy named Joe Biden, turns 81 today. Uh, and another um, who passed away yesterday, uh, Rosalind Carter. Uh, former first lady passed away at age ninety six many of us were i think sitting around uh, waiting for well not sitting around waiting, but we were told that uh, former president Jimmy Carter was in hospice uh and uh, many of us thought uh, he'd be gone by now he's he's stubborn he's holding on and I know that because I've interviewed him many many times over the course of my career uh but uh his wife rosen uh, together almost eighty years ago, good Lord. Uh, Passed away, of course, yesterday at the age of 96 uh, at their home in Plains. And so we'll get both of their thoughts on the former First Lady, Rosalind Carter, uh, passing away yesterday. uh, And Joe Biden celebrating an 81st birthday today and all that that means. Um, So it's going to be a great hour. And uh, uh, I'm looking forward to uh, talking to John and Rui uh, uh, as we move forward. You're listening to Tavis Smile. What's your quarrel with the world? You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Smart talk for curious people just like you. Just like you. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley in conversation with the authors of the book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Uh, Rui Teixeira and John B. Judas are our guests in uh, this first hour today. Uh, Rui, let me start with you. Um, before I jump into into the text uh, and all that, uh, the tentacles that, that offshoot what you all have written, um, your thoughts, and then we'll go to John uh, on um, uh, the passing of Rosalind Carter. We'll get to Joe Biden's birthday in a moment, but let's start with um, with Rosalind Carter uh, and her passing away yesterday at the age of ninety six. Your thoughts about that?
1: Well, well, of course, RIP. I mean, I've always, uh, you know, in a way, it's harking back to a different era, thinking about the Carters, about Jimmy Carter and Rosalind Carter. I mean, I, we have a lot of criticisms of Carter in our book in terms of some of his. Economic policies, but uh, he was a stand up guy, and I think his post presidency was remarkable, uh, and of course, it involved his wife as well in terms of basically they just tried to do good with people for people, they kept a low profile, they worked hard, they didn't try to capitalize economically on uh, their presidency acardo's uh, presidency and um, you know that's in contrast, I think, with some of our other recent presidents who've, uh, you know, sort of cashed in and like to rub elbows with the rich, famous, and powerful. So I always admired that about the Carters. So, as I say, RIP uh, for Roslyn.
0: I want to come back to two things you said a moment ago, uh, Rui. Um, one is this notion of cashing in. We'll come to that in just a second here. Um, but the other thing, since you mentioned the Clintons, um, it, I was thinking about this yesterday. Uh, when the news broke that she'd, she'd made a transition um, before the Clintons offered themselves up as a couple uh, to sort of help run the country, um, Rosalind and Jimmy Carter were, were a pair. She didn't have a policy role in the way that Hillary Clinton did, but they really were a tandem. You got one, you know, you got you, you got two essentially for the price of one. Again, the criticisms in your criticisms in your text of the Carter administration notwithstanding, they really were the original Clintons in terms of working together as a, as a tandem. Uh, again, two for the price of one, really.
1: Yeah, no, I think that's true, and I think it was admirable. And obviously, uh, Rosalind, by working with with Jimmy Carter, wasn't trying to set herself up for <laughs> being another President Carter. So, uh, I mean, that clearly was not the case with yeah. with uh, Hillary and Bill. Where Clinton, Hillary Clinton's ambitions were always massively clear to pretty much everybody.
0: Yep. And to your point about cashing in, um, it's one of the criticisms I've had uh, of late of Barack Obama. It seems to me that they are intent on cashing in and I I hope that once his library is built that he will start to focus more on his legacy but all of these deals with Netflix and movies and books and all the like Clearly, they're cashing in and i ain't mad at them. I'm like Mary J and Jay-Z. I ain't knocking no hustle. But it's a far cry from what Jimmy Carter and Roseland did when they left the White House and it, it earned him the Nobel Peace Prize. Of course, Obama got that while he was president. We can debate that for hours. We won't. Uh, but the point is, mm-hmm. it, it does raise some serious questions about the way that you cement your legacy. And at the moment, I'm not a fan of where the Obamas are going about this. It just seems like it's just a cash in, as I said, for book deals and Netflix deals and everything else. They come running to Hollywood. Uh, But that's not the way I think a post presidency ought to be. Um, You ought to use it to submit uh, whatever good work you did do. Uh, And uh, if you assume that the Obamas are going to live a long time, uh, then what did you not accomplish while you were in the White House that you can use the power of the presidency, the power of that platform? What good in the world can you still do, given all of the the goodwill that you have built up? And it it can't be running to Hollywood to make movies. I do enough people doing that already. Um, So I I hear your point about uh, former presidents cashing in. That's just my read. Since you mentioned it, Rui, give me more of your take on it.
1: Well, yeah, I couldn't agree with you more, Tavis. I mean, I, I'm I'm pretty disappointed with the Obamas. I mean, I, I did like Barack Obama in some ways. Again, we have a lot of criticisms of him in our book, but but I do think he, uh, you know, he had a lot of messages that were very important. I think he was an incredibly charismatic and interesting figure, and there was a lot of things he tried to do during his presidency that, as you say, were left incomplete or needed to be corrected or whatever. And you know i do feel do have the feeling he's just sort of checked out i mean he mostly seems to be busy as you say making deals cashing in as we said uh and basically rubbing elbows with the rich famous and powerful yep uh you know he's he's like a brand <laughs> yeah and he's 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 leveraging that and uh i thought he'd be more active in a sort of socio political sense uh you know and sort of in less of a Hollywood
0: sense, yep. that is disappointing. Yeah, I think the more critique he gets for that, I think he'll get on the right foot, uh, as James Brown would say, get on the good foot. Uh, he is—he's still young and he's energetic, and he, you know, he and Michelle, I—we hope and pray have a lot of years in front of them. He did some good work as president. I wanted to see him build on that. And at the moment uh, we've seen no evidence of that, but again, there's still time. Maybe once the library is built, he'll start to focus more on the social political work that you referenced a moment ago, John, your thoughts. We ain't got to Biden yet. We'll get there, but your thoughts on uh, Rosen Carter passing away yesterday.
2: I uh, same same as the, uh, really the uh, habitat for humanity was a big deal. That was uh, Carter's. And I think she was as active in that as Jimmy, Jimmy Carter. Um, so their um, their um, their legacy is is a uh, it's an excellent one. I think it starts with uh, really with uh, Harry Truman, who after he becomes president goes back to uh, Independence, Missouri, mm-hmm. and uh, he, he has a normal life. But uh, since then, I mean, it's been the president has been much
0: much different. Yeah, what what do you uh, to your point about uh, Harry Truman going back to Independence, uh, uh, where where uh, where it all started for him? What do you make of the fact that after being in the White House and all that uh, that notoriety, uh, all the notoriety that comes with that, they went right back to plains when they left the White House, John?
2: Well, it's the same. I mean, I think that's again that's the that's the uh, Harry Truman model of being uh, of going back and being an ordinary American, and uh, it's. It, it, it was remarkably uh, commendable and you know in addition to that uh obama obama i mean uh, carter, the carters uh, did as you say they com- i think they did stuff that uh continued uh what they hadn't done or what they had only done partially as president and i'm i'm thinking of jimmy carter too in the middle east and uh, um his his writing on um on uh, you know Israel and uh, Camp David, um, he, he uh, his criticisms of Israel were condemned uh, wildly at mm-hmm. the time, um, and now uh, are pretty much become standard issue uh, within Israel itself by yes. uh, critics of the uh, Netanyahu government. So it's um, again, I think that they they uh, they set the standard for. Uh, uh, ex
0: presidents and their, and first ladies. Yeah, it, it is, it is fascinating. Um, uh, I was watching a a film not long ago and there's a great line in the movie that says, if you live long enough, you become either the hero or the villain. Just think about that. If you live long enough, you either become the hero or the villain. Uh, and that can be said of, of Jimmy Carter. Uh, John makes a powerful point now. Uh, I, I remember interviewing president Carter when he wrote that book, uh, uh, and, uh, did an essay, uh, criticizing Israel. And he called what they were doing uh, in Palestine uh, apartheid. Uh, He was roundly and wildly criticized. He took a lot of heat. I mean, I I think post-presidency, he took more heat for that comment than anything he said since then. Uh, since being in the White House, uh, yeah. call, calling this an apartheid state, comparing it to South Africa. And uh, he and I had a, 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 a deep uh, and and uh, just a brilliant conversation, I think, uh, listening to him unpack why he called it apartheid and why he stood in his truth. He stood firm. Uh, he, again, he called a lot of hell, but Jimmy Carter did not back down off that comment uh, about, about apartheid. And to your point, John, now you got protests all around the globe and people in this country pushing President Biden, uh, on what they see uh, as apartheid, what they see as the the world, somebody call, somebody called it the, the world's largest open-air prison. Uh, and the president, as I've said uh, for days now, can only go so much longer. He and his administration, he and Secretary of State Blinken, can only go so much longer without saying ceasefire or de-escalation. But the world, in many respects, to your point, uh, is now right where Jimmy Carter was then. Um, so in that regard um uh, you're right he was he was on point then and uh, i think the world is uh, finally starting starting to catch up uh there'll be a lot more of course um said about it. i should mention that uh, ruey uh, to a point you made earlier uh, i once asked jimmy carter in one of our conversations whether or not he thought he was, whether or not he thought he was the best ex-president we'd ever had, and he was, he was, he was none too happy with the question. He smiled at me uh, and uh, and he uh, he responded. Uh, and uh, at some point uh, when he makes his transition, uh, you know, that's all in the Lord's hands. We have no control over that. Uh, we thought he we thought he was gonna go first, and Rosalind is gone. But at the appropriate time, I'll dig into the vault to pull out the best of my Jimmy Carter. Uh, conversations, assuming that I outlived Jimmy Carter. One never knows how these things work. Uh, but that was a fascinating conversation. His response was pretty amazing when I asked him whether he thought he was the best ex-president we'd ever had. But I'll save that uh, for the appropriate time today. We focus on the life and legacy, uh, the great work of Rosalind Carter. And I, I, I always lean on that because Jimmy Carter, it, well, he we would tell you in a heartbeat, it's not Rosalind. People call her Rosalind all the time. That's not how she uh, pronounced it. Sorry. No, 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 no. I'm just saying to the audience, not to you, to, to the audience, it's right. Rosalind. And he will tell you that. he's just Tabitha like oh, a rose I, I learned that the yeah. first time i got it wrong and i never got it wrong again so it is not rosalind carter it's rosalind carter that's how she uh, pronounced it uh, and that's how the family uh pronounced it and so again our thoughts and prayers uh, to the family of uh, jimmy and rosalind carter on the passing of the former first lady yesterday at the age of 96 uh let me move now from uh commemorating a life well lived uh, uh to a life that is ongoing a life that now uh, is celebrating 81 years. It's a strange sort of moment to be commemorating uh, the, the the passing of a former first lady, a Democrat, uh, and at the same time celebrating the 81st birthday of Joe Biden. I don't need to color this question at all because there's all kinds of commentary. I, I've never seen anybody Rui. Rui have a birthday, <laughs> and have more conversation <laughs> about how old they are rather than just celebrating the fact that they lived another year. So I don't need to color it much more. Your thoughts on Joe Biden today turning 81, Rui, and what that means politically.
1: Well, uh, let's, just, let's just put it this way. It's not a point in his favor. I mean, yeah. <laughs> we know from the polling data and talking to, like, any American you'd, re- you'd wind up uh, talking to on the street you know, there's a super widespread perception he's just too old for the job, and that's now. I mean, he's got four more years. He, you know, just get older. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think people are really leery about that. They know the presidency is a demanding job. They know there's a lot to be done. They know, pretty aware at this point, his schedule is being very carefully managed. When he appears in public and talks, he seems to lose the thread frequently, and he just seems not very forceful and not with it in the way they expect a the president to be. And so uh, they're worried about it, and it's a real uh, problem for him politically. We know that even though Trump is only three, four years younger, whatever, I mean, he's viewed much more positively in terms of his age than than, uh, Biden is, and that's because Trump, as old as he is, still appears vigorous, assertive, et cetera, et cetera, and that makes a difference. And this is on top of all the other problems Biden and his administration have. Even if he wasn't 81, he'd probably still be in a fair amount of hot water, given what people feel about the economy, about immigration and crime, about a lot of other things, they're just not happy with in terms of how the administration has gone. So so he'd be in a he'd be in a bit of a pickle anyway, but you put his age on top of that and it's uh you know, it's not looking like it's going to be a very easy re-election campaign. That's for damn sure.
0: Yep. Um, I, I said this in conversation the other day, Rui. I want to just get your temperature on it right quick here. I, I don't think it's just that he's old, because to your point, Donald Trump Donald Trump ain't a spring chicken either. Uh, and there are all kinds of folk who are old. I mean, look, Jimmy Carter is 99. Rosalind Carter lived to be 96, and they stayed active. And literally, until the last couple of years, they were pretty active. So it's not just about Jimmy Carter was still building houses in his 90s. So it's not just about being right, old. Right. It's about not appearing to be strong and strong and Viral, uh, to your point, losing the thread from time to time. We never saw Jimmy Carter do that, even to, into his 90s. So I, I always want to make this point. It's not about being old. I don't want to bag on people who are old, and I, I know you weren't doing that, but it's, it, it's, it's that he doesn't appear strong at his age. And to your point, we know the work that needs to be done in the second term. We know all that's going on in the world. And so I think there's a distinction between just being old and not just appearing to be strong, really. Yeah,
1: yeah. There's old, and then there's old, old. I right. mean, I think people are— no, personally, people who are 80 or 81 or 82 or whatever who are like, you know, they're totally with it. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they're vigorous, they're strong, they're assertive. They're just older than yeah. most people. But that's not a big deal. But when you see someone who's that age who seems to be on this sort of declining trajectory and sort of has all these tells about how they're, they're not quite, you know, they've lost not just a mile off their fastball, but like 10 miles off their yeah. fastball, right? I mean, people, people have seen that as well. So they look at at Biden and they read into that what they know about, you know, how some people do decline uh, oh. fairly rapidly in their 80s and they're not. Too
0: happy about it. Yep. John, I got about two minutes now, uh, and then we'll come forward and continue on the other side. But let me just do this right quick and get your initial take on this, John, and we'll continue, as I said, when we come forward. So David Axelrod, uh, we mentioned Barack Obama earlier. We all know that David Axelrod, We see, you see him on CNN all the time. Um, Axelrod ran Obama's campaign. He ran a brilliant campaign. I've never in my lifetime seen a campaign run more brilliantly than the Obama campaign was run <clears throat> the first time around. And Axelrod did an amazing job Running that campaign, always want to give him his props for that. Um, That said, uh, so Maureen Dowd had a piece yesterday in The New York Times you may have seen. It was pretty fascinating. Um, So David Axelrod, uh, some days ago, said that Biden has done uh, a wonderful job, uh, did an honorable job in his first term. This is David Axelrod now, saying he ought to step aside, let somebody else be the nominee, um, let some younger persons, uh, you know, uh, uh, put their name in the hat. Uh, and just walk away a hero. That's David Axelrod. You've done a great job. You brought the country back from the brink uh, you, economically, and 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 in terms of policy, uh, you've done a pretty amazing job. Whether people feel it or not, to Rui's point, you've done a pretty amazing job. You've 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 reestablished our credibility around the globe. Um, the damage that many thought that Trump had done that was irreparable, uh, Joe Biden has shown you can pull some of that back. So you've done an amazing job, and now it's time to leave honorably. Leave a hero. Walk away. Let somebody else be the nominee. That's David Axelrod, who was involved in getting Joe Biden to be the running mate with Barack Obama. So he has no hate for for Joe Biden. He just believes that now uh, he needs to step aside and he believes. Uh, this is, again, quoting from Maureen Dowd's piece yesterday in The New York Times, that at best, at best, Biden has a 50-50 chance of winning and maybe less than that. That's David Axelrod yesterday to Maureen Dowd in her piece. The president responded. Uh, on the eve of his birthday, by calling David Axelrod a prick, that's what Joe Biden called uh, David Axelrod yesterday. So that's Axelrod's gift. The president responds in 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 uh, in in that regard. Uh, And Maureen had a lot to say about it again in her piece yesterday. When we come forward, uh, given that the president is turning 81 today and given that there are people at the level of David Axelrod now, who was involved again in getting him on the ticket, remember Obama saying it's time to step aside and leave a hero on your 81st birthday. We'll see what John B. Judas has to say about that. And then we'll talk about their book, of course, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? You're listening to John B. Judas and Rui Teixeira on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Let's get back to more of Tavis Smiley right now. Tavis Smiley and John B. Judas and Rui Teixeira, who are co-authors of the book, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? Um, Speaking of where all the Democrats gone, uh, David Acerod, who ran Obama's campaign and got him elected, uh, believes that Joe Biden ought to be gone, uh, gone from the White House. He has uh, done his job. Uh, He served honorably. He has stewarded the economy well, Uh, again, restored our uh, our good name uh, around the globe, although not so much right now with the way that people are processing what the Biden administration is doing uh, in the Middle East. Uh, So maybe the good name is getting tarnished just a bit uh, uh, more at the moment, Uh, but basically done a good job. And David Axelrod uh, says that he ought to uh, just uh, ride into the sunset, uh, leave the White House now, let someone younger have this job, leave a hero and go down in the books as um, as having done his job. Uh, and Joe Biden is hearing none of it. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, in response to uh, David Axelrod saying, saying you got to step aside, he caught him a prick. Um, that's what the president <laughs> said. Uh, and uh, Maureen Dowd uh, had a fascinating piece about this yesterday. Uh, and she spoke to David Oxerrod for her Sunday column uh, in The New York Times. You should read it to get more backstory on it. All that said, though, the president is turning 81 today. Uh, in case you've just tuned in and haven't heard, I'm sure you have by now. Uh, We lost uh, former first lady Rosalind Carter yesterday at the age of 96. So on the one hand, it's a sad day um, and maybe not so sad. She lived a long and and wonderful life. Uh, We're certainly uh, celebrating, commemorating uh, her life and legacy. But at the same time, today is Biden's 81st birthday. And as I said earlier, I sort of feel bad for a guy. We can't just celebrate his birthday. It is the topic du jour today. He's 81. Nobody's saying happy birthday, but they're all all analyzing, as we're doing right now, what it means that he is 81. So all that said, John Beutas, your thoughts on Axelrod and others, obviously, but Axelrod is Axelrod, saying he ought to step aside.
2: Well, we don't have a parliamentary system in the United States. If we did, the party would meet and... Uh, they could appoint somebody new, as they did in uh, Britain. You can get rid of Boris Johnson, and then you end up with uh, Liz Truss or Rishi Sunak. Uh, in the United States, it doesn't work that way. We have this primary system, and it, it's pretty much up to Biden, whether he runs or not. Now, if he were to drop out now suddenly, uh, Democrats would be in a bad position because um uh registration is almost up in some of the early primary states. Uh you'd have Kamala Harris, uh who was a bust as a presidential candidate, uh, when she ran four years ago. Uh and then you'd probably have some ambitious governors. Pritz, Pritz Pritzker, Illinois. Mm-hmm. Newton, California. Uh Gretchen Whitmore, though she might have a harder time raising money than the other guys. Uh Pritzker has a lot of money himself. So, um, Again, I, I I don't know how, how it would work uh, because uh, again, uh, uh, Kamala's reputation as a campaigner, you just you still can't tell. It's not great. I don't know whether she would do better than uh, Biden. So uh, it, it, I I don't think it's going to happen in any case.
0: Yeah. Um, so you think you, you think it's not going to happen, that there, there there is no surprise to come? You don't think that there's any chance that as these voices grow louder, um, saying he ought to step aside, as there are more and more concerns being raised today and beyond, now that he's crossed over to 81, you don't think there's any chance at all that Joe Biden surprises us at, the, uh, at, at any point and says, I'm not doing it?
2: Um, I think it's a little too late. I, you know, Lyndon Johnson stepped down in the, uh, in what was it about March of mm-hmm. 1968, mm-hmm. but you had a different primary system then. You didn't have to, uh, uh, Hubert Humphrey didn't actually run in any primaries because they were all decided by, uh, uh, insiders within the state who were appointed, uh, de- de- who appointed, appointed the uh, delegates to the convention. Um, this would be more of a mess. And, uh, uh, my, my suspicion, again, is that uh, B- Biden is in it for the long haul, that he's going to do it.
0: Okay. All right, Rui, um, let's go right into your book, uh, Where Have All the Democrats Gone? There are a number of ways to read that title. One could read it, in, in, again, in a, in, a, in a variety of ways. Um, unpack the title for me first and tell me what uh, more about what's inside the book.
1: Right. Okay. Well, when we say uh, in the title, where have all the Democrats gone, we're not uh, saying that obviously the Democrats have <laughs> all left the room and, and they're, they're not much of a party anymore and they're just losing every election. Of course, that's not true. In fact, to some extent, what we're trying to do in the book is try to explain and understand the sort of the stalemate between the two parties that we now currently see with these alternations of power Uh, you know, sort of uh, which basically elections seem to be decided a lot on the basis of which bad aspect or extreme aspect of one party is most popular and salient and then the other party can whack them with it. So that's not exactly what we had in mind when we wrote the emerging Democratic majority, which came out in 2002. Mm -hmm. And we thought Democrats did have a chance of uh, forming a dominant majority coalition that would have some Durability. That seemed to come true with the 2008 election of Obama, but since then, uh, clearly that hasn't really uh, come to fruition, and we've seen a lot of back and forth, and we've seen famously uh, the Trump victory in 2016. So we're trying to understand that. How did the Democrats get to the position they are where they can't seem to decisively beat the other side, despite all the other sides manifest and deep Weaknesses. And that's really what we're trying to understand. And and part of that is sort of tracing the evolution of Democrats as Democrats. Mm -hmm. What do they stand for? What are their priorities? What is their image among the public? Who calls the shots within the party now? We talk about a thing called the shadow party in our book, uh, which is sort of this penumbra of nonprofit advocacy groups, foundations intellectuals, uh, you know, big parts of the media, which really kind of surround and promote the Democratic Party, even though they aren't officially part of it, mm-hmm. and which have a certain set of priorities, which are different from that of what you might call the median working class voter. Yeah. Uh, and as the Democrats have moved in that direction, it's taken them away from the concerns of working class voters. And surprise, surprise, they're losing working class voters. First, it was mostly white working class voters. We saw that really come home to roost with the election of Trump in 2016. But now we're seeing non-white working class voters start to bail out from the Democrats as well. So, uh so that's kind of part of the question mark there is how did democrats of you know 40 years ago become the democrats they are today. Mm-hmm.
0: And and what do these changing uh Rui really lays out a whole lot there uh, John I'm glad he did because it now allows the audience to understand the frame uh of the book where have all the democrats gone. The question now though is how do these changing demographics impact and affect Biden's chances next year John?
2: Well they don't, in a sense, because what's going to happen uh, next year is that uh, I, I, I suspect the part, the election is going to be fought on which party's most extreme elements become most repellent to voters. Mm-hmm. So in 2020, what we had was really a, a, a referendum on Trump's uh, presidency and uh, a sufficient number of voters especially the swing voters who might go the other way, uh, disliked Trump sufficiently so that they were able to uh, vote for Biden, who in that election was a kind of blank slate. He was an okay guy. Nobody ascribed uh, any extreme positions to him. For instance, defund the police was not ascribed to to Biden. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't have... Um, abolish the uh, information and uh, the Immigration Customs Agency. So he, he, he sort of stood for a no, more normal, common man and woman voter. And uh, people who didn't like Trump voted for him. So in 2024, the fear, I think, that Democrats have is that, that, vote, that those swing voters in the middle are going to focus on uh, uh, Biden's age, and on inflation, and, you know, maybe even funding for Ukraine, what have you, but that it won't be about Trump. Biden's hope is that it's going to be about uh, the Trump of stop the steal. Trump will get convicted Mm -hmm. in one or two of these uh, cases, and uh, people won't want a felon in the uh, White House. So that's I think that's going to be, that plus abortion is going to be the Biden appeal in 2024.
0: The book is called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The authors are John B. Judas and Rui Teixeira. You're listening to them right now on Tavis Smiley. For all the freedom-loving folk, this is Tavis Smiley. I
2: feel like free.
0: He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. 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 More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Rui Teixeira, I um, I I I could have and probably should have mentioned the subtitle of your book. It's called "Where Have All the Democrats Gone?" And the title itself is pretty provocative. But the subtitle is "The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes." Where have all the Democrats gone? The soul of the party in the age of extremes. In this age of extremes, um, how does the party? Uh, reconnect with its soul. Uh, put another way, Dr. King used to always say that um, that our mission, uh, his mission, the goal of those in the civil rights era, was to help redeem the soul of America. That was the mantra for SCLC, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, redeeming the soul of America. Um, uh, how do we redeem the soul of Democrats as you see it?
1: Well, of course, that, that's a very big question, Tavis. I mean, I think that uh, one thing we're really trying to get across there is – uh when did the Democrats do the best as, as a party in America? When did they mm-hmm. have the best image? When did they move forward in the, in a, in the best possible way and uh, it, present the most appealing face to the American public? It's when they were the party of the common man and woman, mm-hmm. of the ordinary American, of the forgotten American. Uh, and, you know, a party that stood for universal uplift for the working and middle class.
0: And they aren't that now, as you see it?
1: Not, I, I don't think that's their image at this point. I think they do some good things, but I think the way things have evolved in the last 50 years or so has taken the Democrats away from that soulful kind of economic uplift for everybody, uh, culturally moderate to conservative on social issues, respect for traditionalism in some ways, and just basically not trying to be too far out front of the American people on cultural issues. And I think the Democrats really have changed, as their base has changed, as the labor movement has declined, and as the role of college-educated liberals has become increasingly strong within the party. Hmm. We divide up our our book into two uh, sort of parts. One is the Great Divide, where we talk about how there's been a divorce between the fate of of working-class, non-college-educated people and college-educated people all over the country, and in particular, a geographical divide that's opened up between small-town, rural and exurban America, flyover country, and the more dynamic uh, cosmopolitan metropolitan areas, Mm. which are doing much better economically and which are dominated, again, by these educated liberals, particularly college-educated white liberals. And we feel that that had a real effect on how Democrats were viewed as a increasingly throughout the last part of the 20th century, became identified with a set of economic policies that a lot of working class people felt didn't benefit them around issues of trade, of financial deregulation, and generally embracing a sort of soft neoliberalism, which I think continued through the administrations of Clinton and Obama to some extent. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's had an effect. And then I think we see in the 21st century, Democrats become not just a party of cultural liberalism in some ways, but even of cultural radicalism. uh, Embracing a lot of boutique causes that came out of the campuses, and even a type of language that they use that uh, is pretty uh, foreign to a lot of working-class people and doesn't help the
0: Democrats with those voters. When we come forward in our remaining moments with Rui and John, I want to ask Rui uh, specifically, given what he's just said now, whether he thinks that uh, labor flexing of late and flexing quite nicely, winning a lot of these fights, whether or not the flex of labor in any way aids and abets Democrats uh, finding their soul once again. And then we'll wrap our conversation asking John uh, about whether any party can 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 find or know what its soul is in politics that are so paralyzed and polarized. We'll do that when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. From the Mert Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. More honesty than you can handle. Than you can You're we Smiley. got about three minutes left here in conversation with John B. Judas and Rua Teixeira. Enough time for two quick questions. Rua, you first. Uh, we were talking earlier about the soul of the Democratic Party, um, and you uh, talked about um, the diminishing labor movement. Of late, though, labor has been flexing. Does that aid in the bet the Democratic Party reconnecting with its soul in the years to come?
1: I think it's uh, helping some, and it could help some more if if we get more action along those lines. Well, let's keep in mind that despite the recent UAW victory, only 6 percent of private sector workers are unionized, and that doesn't look like it's changing very fast. If you want to change it fast, you've got to change the laws that govern how people can pursue unionization, which means labor law reform, which means having 60 votes. In the Senate, to override a filibuster. Democrats aren't even close to that, and that's one of our concerns in the book is how uncompetitive the Democrats have become in in a lot of areas of America that would actually allow them to do that. So uh, good start, but there's a long way to go.
0: In a politics, John B. Judas, that is so polarized and so uh, paralyzed, how does any party uh, know what its soul is, much less how to connect to it? Because if you think the Democrats are having trouble finding their soul, the Republicans are really out of whack.
2: I think that uh, usually it takes a crisis. I mean, it took the Great Depression to produce uh, the New Deal majority, and it might take one again. I mean, I think both Rui and I thought that the uh, Great Recession of 2007-2008 going on would uh, help uh, the Democrats, that Obama would be able to um, establish the Democrats as the uh, party that people really trusted on the economy. But um, he got uh, he he got he got waylaid partly by the people he chose to uh, run his uh, economic policy, and also by the Republicans. And it didn't happen. And it took five or six years to get out of the recession. And the Democrats lost a lot of elections in the meantime. So yeah, it's, it might take a big shakeup in order for the uh, parties to
0: turn around. Um, are either of you hopeful um, that the Democratic Party specifically will in fact turn around? in the months or years to come. You first, Rui?
1: Uh, not the months. I mean, I think everything's pretty much baked in for 2024. I don't expect much to happen. I'm somewhat hopeful that in the latter part of the decade, uh, as parties process what happened in that election and, and other developments, uh, there'll be a attempt to mm-hmm. you know move back to the center in a good way and reestablish the party as the party of the common man and woman. But we'll see.
0: Last word, John. Well, if Trump
2: is elected in 2024, I think we're going to have a real crisis in the country. And uh, out of that, uh, things can either go much worse or much better. And we'll just have to see.
0: We will have to see. Um, we will we will wait and see with bated breath, uh, but we will vote. We will vote uh, while we wait and see. The book is called Where Have All the Democrats Gone? The Soul of the Party in the Age of Extremes. The co-authors of that text are John B. Judas and Rui Teixeira, who I've been honored to have as our guest in this hour. John and Rui, all the best to you. Thank you for your time. Take care of yourself.
1: Hey, thanks for having us, Dennis. Yeah, thank you.
0: My great delight to have you on.